Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. I don't know what to do with myself without that fun little bumper video. You get all this time to like breathe and I don't know. This is a strange introduction. I don't know. Uh, well, for those of you who don't know, my name is Aaron Bjorklund. I'm one of the pastors here at South, and uh, I'm so glad to see you because we couldn't do church without you because you know you are the church. Uh, this building is just a building, but you are the church. And so if you didn't show up, there was going to be no church today. So I'm so glad you're here. Uh, if you're tuning in online, we're glad that you uh, are there are, and watching on the screen. We hope you can connect with us as well. Uh, through the screen. But I would, uh, I would like to just pray briefly again, just for myself to settle myself since I don't have the bumper video to pray. So I'm going to do that, if that's okay. Uh, Jesus, I pray that you would help uh, each one of us to encounter your word, and more importantly, to encounter you, the living word. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we hear your word that uh, you would transform us from the inside out and you would make us the community that you want us to be. Amen and amen. All right. So how many of you would consider yourself a list person? You're a list person. You like, you like lists. You like making lists. There's like someone so bold, they're still raising their hands. You like making, their li- making lists. You love checking things off lists, right? Uh, you like checking things off lists so much that if you did something that wasn't on your list, you add it to the list so that you can immediately check. Anyone else? Okay. This, this picture just gives you peace in your soul. I see you list people. Now, I'm not a natural list person. Uh, if this is your desk, uh, this is my desk. It's not the uh, busiest, chaotic, most chaotic desk in the world, but it's not exactly this. Uh, my wife is a list person. She has lists all around our house. She's organized. She calendars every season. She has a, a list for different season, all these sorts of things. And she sort of teases me from time, time to time because I'll be frustrated that I forgot something or I double booked myself or whatever. And she'll be like, you know you could write this stuff down, right? And I'm like, oh, I know. I really want, like, I want to be a list person, but it's not my natural bent. So if you're a list person today is for you. I see you, list people. In fact, it's so much for you, I, I, I gave you notes. Like, it was just to acknowledge that you're there, and, uh, and this passage is actually a list. And so this is going to be, at the end of the sermon, you're going to feel so satisfied. You're going to have a list, and you can check things off lists. It's going to be great. So am I saying, what about the rest of us? Am I saying this sermon's not for you? Well, no, because the subject matter of this list is loving people who drive you nuts. And sometimes you list people drive us nuts. Am I wrong? No? Any other people? We're not going to make you raise your hand. Um, So for me, uh, sometimes I struggle loving people that are different than me, that think differently, that are wired differently than me. But guess what? 
non-list people, I see you also. Uh, we drive the list people nuts also. Isn't that how relationships work sometimes? We encounter people and they rub us the wrong way or they think differently, especially in uh, family relationships and in church relationships. And I think the reason we struggle most with family relationships and church relationships oftentimes is because we don't get to pick who's in those environments, right? You don't get to choose your crazy uncle or that, that family member last thanks, actually this last week at Thanksgiving who really wanted to talk about politics the entire time. We laugh about those sorts of things. There's lots of comedians that talk about like family meals and stuff because uh, we laugh because it's so true. We encounter people that, we, that rub us the wrong way. And the same thing is true about church life. We don't get to choose who walks into these doors. We don't get to choose who the living God invites in to his family. In fact, we, we just have to deal with all the people who walk through the doors. Now, the strange reality of that is that's what it's supposed to be like. You see, the healthiest churches exhibit, we, we're the strange entity because we embody all sorts of walks of life. Think about this. We have people in this church with different political backgrounds and worldviews. We have people in this church with different theological worldviews. We have introverts and extroverts. We have young, we have old, and they, we smash us all together and we're supposed to make one unit. And it sounds beautiful, but it's difficult at sometimes. And that's the way it's supposed to be. This very diverse environment is how God designed his church. In fact, healthy churches should reflect significant differences because the gospel is for everyone. Think about that. The gospel is for everyone. That means we might find a lot of different kinds of people that walk through these doors, but it's not always easy, is it? To encounter and interact with. Maybe you hear someone in the hallway at, your, at the church who is talking about politics and you're like, I can't believe that I'm in the same church with someone who thinks that way or about a theological thing. I can't believe they think this way or that way. And yet this is what God's designed and invited all of us strange people to be in the same place. In fact, as church leaders, sometimes we have conversations about how do we increase the amount of diversity in our community? We're actually trying to create this tension. So the question that we have today is this, how can we fight for sincere love when we encounter people in our community, in our own church community that we struggle with? This is the question that we have today. How can we fight for sincere love when we encounter people in our community that we struggle with? And for that reason, I've titled this message, this is a, a standalone message in between our Sermon on the Mount series and our Advent series, but this week we're just gonna focus on this one, one subject matter, united against the odds. So I just described the odds, you know? All of our diversity, that's fighting against us, but we're gonna pursue to be united against the odds, growing sincere love in a community of differences. And I think to our passage today, if you want to turn there in your Bible, uh, I would encourage you to do that in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 9 is where, where we're going to start. Our passage today is going to help us to figure out an answer to some of the questions that I just raised. How do we fight for sincere love? Not just, uh, not just tolerating people, but a sincere love for a diverse community. I'm going to read 
in Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 16 for us, and then we'll dive in. It says this, love must be sincere. And for you list people, if you listen to it, you can sort of hear the list here, right? Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, sharing with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So uh, because this isn't part of a series, we haven't had the liberty of going all the way through the entire book of Romans. Maybe someday we'll do that, but uh, context when you're studying the scriptures is extremely important, and it's no different with this passage. So let me give you a little bit of the lay of the land, because we're finding ourselves towards the end of this book of Romans, and so I, I want to make sure you know what's going on so far. So Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, and it's a highly diverse church, kind of like us, right? It's made up of a lot of Jews, Jewish Christians, and then a lot of Gentile followers of Jesus. And they've been smashed together, and they couldn't be any more different. It'd be the equivalent of a Palestinian converting to, Jew to Christianity, and a, a, a Jew converting to Christianity, and then now they're in the same church, and so they're highly diverse. In the first few chapters of Romans, Paul does this, he speaks across the party lines between these two parties. At, in the opening chapters, he tries to explain how Gentiles need a savior, and he, he explains how they need some sort of savior to come and reach into their lives. And then if the Jews are starting to get like, okay, well, yeah, the Gentiles need that, uh, but we're good. Then in the following few chapters, he explains why the Jews need a savior and why they desperately need a savior, just like their Gentile uh, family members in the church family. And then in the following few chapters, he lays out this majestic declaration of what the gospel is, which is that both parties stand on the same footing of the gospel, that the gospel is an invitation to all people because of the cross of Jesus to come to the same level ground. And he, he culminates that section with a majestic passage in Romans chapter eight that says, neither height nor depth nor things present nor things future can separate us from the love of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful idea. And he levels the playing field between these two groups of people. And then in chapter nine and uh, up to 11, he sort of deals with some hanging questions that they have about, well, what's the point of being a Jew? And what's the point of being a Gentile? And which one's better than the other? He answers all these questions. But then in chapter 12, which is where we're gonna spend our time this morning, he pivots to application. Up until this point in, this, in his letter to Rome, he's been talking about these theological ideas, concepts way up in the clouds. If you've ever read the book of Romans, I encourage you to do it. But it's this concept and that concept and this concept. But here in Romans chapter 12, he says, I want to make sure that this, these concepts don't just disappear into never, never land, but instead they actually work themselves out. The rubber meets the road and he starts to move to application. And that's where we find our passage today. And I think that this particular text, what I just read, it starts with love must be sincere, is sort of a preparation for what he's gonna be doing for the rest of the book. 
Because get this, in the next few chapters, he's gonna be asking them to do some insane things. Like submit to governing authorities. You know, the government that's killing Christians? Yeah, you submit to them. You should change your food diets for the sake of loving each other. You're gonna be doing these very challenging things as a church family, and he's wanting to prepare them for that really difficult, challenging message that he's gonna be giving them about the implications of the gospel. And so this list that he gives us is sort of like his packing list for the journey of application that he's gonna give. All right, so if you like packing lists, this is our packing list for what it looks like to be able to handle the implications of the gospel. And he starts like this. Love must be sincere. A lot of scholars, the the Greek here in in verse 9 shifts pretty significantly. It gets really sort of um, short and sharp, and uh, each phrase is very, very short. A lot of scholars believe it's literally a bullet point list, but this phrase, most of them believe this is actually the title of the list. In other words, you could read it, sincere love, colon, or semicolon, I don't do grammar, so which one, I don't know. Sincere love, colon. This is the heading of our list. Everything in this list is designed to help us achieve that end. Sincere love. And that's what we're targeting after today. That's what I described what we want to have in this community, in our families, and that sort of thing. So, and then he goes from point to point to point. Sincere love, colon, Point, tip, attribute, idea, etc. This is the journey that we're on. So this is the packing list that we have for his application. And we're going to be going on a journey together deeper into the book of Romans. And he's going to be challenging us to face really hard things. He's going to be saying, you've got to sacrifice yourselves in various different ways. And I need to prep you with sincere love. So that's what we're headed for. But I also think that this, just like any other list, Actually, you can see it in this list. Sometimes you'll categorize. Am I speaking your language list, people? I'm trying. I'm trying my best here. You have gear and kitchen and tent and fun, all these things you categorize. I think the same thing's true about the list here. So because it's a list, I'm going to bounce around a little bit. I'm going to categorize some of the things in Paul's list. Are you ready? Should we dive in to Paul's sincere love list? Well, the first category that we find is starts in the second half of verse nine. It says this, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now the language here is uh, again, really sparse, but it, it actually could read something like this. Hate evil, cling to good. It's like very short phrases. And the word here for hate is very strong. Like it is like uh, abhor, be detested by, be repulsed by that which is evil. Things that are broken, things that are evil, things that are sinful, let's become the kinds of people that are, are repulsed by those things. And then cling is equally charged in the Greek. The Greek there for cling is the same word that you might use, and the New Testament does use it this way, to talk about the intimacy of the consummation of marriage. This is like really intimate, right? really, really close. We want to be clung to that which is good, intimate with, intimately familiar with that which is good. So if, I don't know if you've ever played with magnets before, like two strong magnets. If you flip them one way, they sort of repel each other. You can't quite pinch them together, but if you flip them back the other way, they snap together. This is kind of the idea here. Hate or be repelled by evil things. 
Let's avoid these things. Sin, brokenness, destruction, hate, be repulsed by them, but cling, be snapped together, intimately familiar with that which is good. And so this is just one of the things in our first category is to hate what is evil. Now, what's strange is, remember this is a list about loving each other, right? But right here, it starts with personally hate what's evil and personally cling to what is good. Okay, okay, this is leading towards loving each other. All right, all right, we'll move on. In this first category, there's another thing. He says this, never be lacking in zeal. The word zeal here is very interesting because it's, it's sort of like to fight for an emotional affection for, to, to, to grow in your emotions around. So never be lacking in emotional affection for, but keep your f- spiritual fervor. So the phrase could be read like this, in zeal, not lacking. And again, this is a strange thing to say in a list about loving each other because we know he's, like it would make sense to say, uh, fight for an emotional affection for each other. But instead he says, fight, uh, but keep, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So this is a, a affection, an emotional uh, stirring in our souls for our spiritual lives and our spiritual relationships with, with God. So what's he doing here? This is, uh, it's an interesting word there. This fervor is spiritually boiling, serving the Lord. It's like this energy that's in you, in your affections deep down, cultivate this kind of soul. Okay, so this first category, we have these character traits about our personal lives. What's he doing here? Then he gives us another one in this first category. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And again, these are, we could do a whole sermon just on these three phrases, but they're personal character attributes. What's going on here? What's he trying to accomplish? How does this, how does our personal character affect our sincere love for one another? I think Paul recognizes something that's very interesting your personal walk with Jesus, your personal devotion, the fervency that you have in your soul is not just for you. It's for each other. We are so affected as human beings by the emotional worlds and the spiritual vibrancy of our individual characters that you individually in the private prayer life or in your time with Jesus or in that walk that you take have the capacity to transform the DNA of this church family. Your character, this first category, this first seed that we can plant in our souls is your character isn't personal. It's where sincere love grows. So I encourage you to, to fight for this. Don't let your zeal for your, for your Lord become stale. Don't let that become lax. I remember for myself, this transformed in my mind pretty significantly five or six years ago. Uh, I was in a particular season where I'm just, and I do this, I tend to do this, I get to working too hard and I'm too busy and all these sorts of things. And I had gotten to the place in my life where I completely neglected, neglected personal uh, care, 
physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And then I encountered this quote uh, and this idea from Dallas Willard, and it really changed the way I thought about all of this, and it's freed me up. In fact, I felt, I felt in sometimes that if I spent too much time on myself, that somehow I was not serving well enough, right? I, I took all my self-care time and I poured it into this church or into other things or whatever, but I'm giving, 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 giving and never actually sitting at the feet of Jesus and being filled by his goodness. And then I encountered this quote by Dallas Willard. He says this, God is more interested in the person you're becoming than in your work or your ministry or your job. Another way it was put to me was uh, John Ortberg, one of Dallas's uh, close friends, was asking him, how do I become a better pastor? And Dallas Willard said, you know, the best thing you have to offer your church as a pastor is the person you're becoming. And I've come to believe over the last several years that the, that's true in every category of life. The best thing you have to offer your family is the person you're becoming. The best thing you have to offer your workplace is the person you're becoming. It's not what you produce. It's not your output. It's who you are. The best thing you have to offer this church family is the person that you are becoming. We cannot neglect that personal character because it's inside of that personal character that we plant the seeds of sincere love. We can't neglect it. That's our first category. The first seed of genuine love is actually our own personal character development. But there's another category here that will give us uh, another way we can encounter and fight for this sincere love. So what's that other category? Well, we can find it. It starts in our list up in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Or again, this is my little translation, in brotherly love, fully devoted. That's sort of how the Greek reads. Now this is not the first time the word love has showed up in this passage. If you look back at verse nine, in our title for our list, it says, love must be sincere. The word love there in our title, love must be sincere, is the word agape. But that's not the word he uses here. This is Philadelphia, or brotherly love, right? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. And I think um, a lot of New Testament writers do this, especially Paul, he'll mix and match. In the Greek language, there's all these different words for love, and they'll mix and match oftentimes these words because they're trying to find a way to expand and stretch the meaning of love to envelop everything that God had in mind when he talks about us, his love for us, and us loving each other. And so I think that that's what's going on. And now imagine with me this church in Rome, and they're reading this letter, and they get through this majestic theological ascent of Romans chapter uh, 1 through 11, and they are like, oh yeah, God's love, agape love, this unconditional love, this ethereal, almost distant, hard to even imagine unconditional love. And they're like, okay, that's love. Yes, love must be sincere. It's like this distant idea maybe. And then they re read, be devoted to one another like a family member or a brother. And they're like, oh, I was, 
I was maybe okay with this like ethereal kind of conceptual idea of agape love, but you want to, you want me to treat the Gentile like a family member, like to eat with them, to fellowship with them. And he's, I think, he, I think that's what he's doing here with this word love. He's trying to mess with them a little. If they thought they had it categorized in the right place, he weasels his way in the back door and he says, you guys should be like brothers. And they might fight like cats and dogs, but if your brothers in, or your siblings in trouble, it's sort of like you show up for them. They're family, right? This is the idea for them. And it's really hard for this church to think about fellowshipping with brotherly affection or sisterly affection in this context, and that's what he's doing here. So the second category, this, this is the first one in that second category. And then he goes on, he says, honor one another above yourselves. In honor, lead the way. That's sort of how it reads in the Greek. So in other words, this is a self-giving kind of love. This is a brotherly affection that honors one another above yourselves. <laughs> and I love this. Paul's messing with them. And then he goes on. He says, share with, with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This is another way in the second category of the list that he challenges them is to share with one another. And I think maybe as Paul's writing this, <laughs> I can imagine he's got the words of Jesus ringing in his ear when he says, when when he writes this, he says, for Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <laughs> and so he, he knows that if you, want, if you want to feel something for someone, give to them, right? He's, he's, he's challenging them that here in, in verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. This, this is an invitation to let your stuff your time, your energy go towards that hard to love person. Hey, just as a side note, if you're here and you've been coming to the church for a little while and you're struggling to emotionally connect with this community, maybe one of the things you can do is to give to this community in some way. I'm not just talking financially, I'm saying your affections, your connection, your emotional uh, connection to a community or a group of people is connected to your money, your time, and your energy. So it could be said this way. If you want to learn to love someone, if you want to learn how to feel connected with and love and have affection for someone, give to them. Give time. Give money. Give energy. This is the invitation. It's a self-sacrificial means by which you start to cultivate love in your soul. Then he moves on. In the second category, there's another thing in the second category. It says this. Bless those who persecute you. Okay, that's getting a little bit intense. We talked about this last week a little bit when we, uh, Alex preached on loving your enemies. So you can go back and listen to that message. But it sort of has that same feeling, right? This is a pretty intense ask. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Up until this point in the passage, uh, we haven't had any imperative verbs. An imperative verb just means a command. Every single phrase is, because it's like bullet point style, it carries the weight of commands, but this is the first command 
that Paul gives in this particular passage. In other words, this is not an option. If you're a follower of Jesus and you call yourself a part of his church, you must bless those who persecute you. You bless, you do not curse. This is the kind of people that Jesus' people are. We're people who learn to bless those who persecute us. And some scholars have struggled with this in the context because all this is sort of internal church family stuff, right? And they're like, well, persecuting sounds like it's an outside the church thing, right? Is, this, is he jumping to dealing with persecutors of the church for a second and then going back to internal family life? Well, no, I don't think so at all. If you've ever if you've been a member of a church or participated in church life for any length of time, you might know that some of the greatest enemies are from within, right? You might know that some of the hardest people to deal with are inside the church. And so I think that that's what he's saying. You are to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. This is a self-sacrificial way of approaching relationship. And then he goes on. In this second category in our list, he gives us another thing in the list. Rejoice with those rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. (laughs) Again, he wants to get it. This is not just a head knowledge thing. He's done the head knowledge thing all the way up through the chapter 11. And now he really wants this idea to get deep down into their emotions. He wants our emotions to be affected by the people around us in our church family. I don't know, have you ever worked in a place uh, or been a part of a community group or a, a family gathering where you know the people really well and then you can walk in the room or like for me here, here I can walk down the hallway and I know the staff pretty well and I can walk down the hallway and I can look in this office and glance in this office and glance in this office and I can sort of get the emotional atmosphere of that office space. Okay, so-and-so, ooh, they're having a rough day. Okay, I gotta watch out here. I gotta, you know, all these sorts of things. Have you ever been in an environment like that? Or you walk into a room and a family, uh, family member's in that room and you can kind of just read the room, right? This is you being affected by and knowing so intimately those people that you are, your affections are transformed. And in the best scenario, you can say, oh, I'm just gonna avoid that person or whatever. But in the, be- in the good scenario, what Jesus is asking us to do here is he wants us to rejoice with those who rejoice. When you walk past that person's office and you know something happened in their life that was a huge win for them, you're able to step in and say, oh, I'm so excited for you. I rejoice and I'm actually genuinely excited for you because my emotions are affected by you. Now that takes vulnerability, that takes intimacy, that takes knowledge of an understanding of what's going on in their world, right? Otherwise you wouldn't be able to be moved by their situation. And mourn with those who mourn when you walk into someone's office and you see that they're heavy, you say, what's going on? And they say one thing, but you know the whole backstory because you've actually built enough relationship. This is what he's talking about. And he's doing this to a church that probably had never interacted across these lines. And he's saying, no, I want you guys to get so intimately familiar with each other and have such close relationship that you know each other's stories. It could be said this way. You can't be affected by someone's story if you don't know their story, right? It's true. So if you're struggling to love someone, It's shocking how when I've found a moment where I can actually sit down and say, tell me your story. 
or how'd you get to that place or whatever, and you listen to their story, my, all of the edges in my soul of animosity or frustration just start to fade away. I may still disagree with them, but I am moved in a different way by them. Then what, one more thing in this second category is this. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. I'm just going to say it this way in this one. Pride is the great enemy of sincere love. The moment you, if you ever have this thought, and I'm sure you've never, because none of us would ever think this way, but if you've ever had the thought of like, they just aren't, uh, they're just not thinking clearly about this. I'm thinking clearly, they're not thinking clearly. If you, that these kinds of thoughts that elevate us above someone else and we're not associating with someone in low position or they're not as educated or they had a rough background and therefore they're not thinking, whatever it is, anything that would say I'm better than they are, that is not the way of Jesus. Pride is the enemy of sincere love. You might get pity out of pride. You might get um, sort of that intellectual love. Yes, of course, I love everyone. But to actually be moved by affection for someone, you don't get that out of pride. And I think Jesus himself is our best example of how to love like this. First John 3.16 says it this way. This is how we know what love is. So if you want to know what love is, this is how. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is what love is. I, lo- I, I uh, read this quote this week by Fleming Rutledge and it's a little bit long, but Alex does long quotes and I think you guys, he's, he's trained you on it. So, oops, I'm losing my remote for some reason. Working. I wonder if it's frozen. (laughs) Maybe I won't give you the quote. It looks like our software's frozen. I will see if I can find it elsewhere. Um, That's okay. I'll move on. So the Jesus Christ is our example of what love is. This is a self sacrificial kind of love. It's self-giving. It's self-sacrificial. Um, and of course, the resident tech guy is the one preaching, so I don't know how I'm, I'm like, full, full honesty, my, I'm tech troubleshooting in my head right now, and so you lost me. Um, what are we talking about again? I'm gonna take a drink. If you guys quit, if you guys quit the software and reopen it, it'll it'll work. You guys have to love me because I'm talking about loving, so it's fine. It's fine. But Jesus exemplified this sincere love because while we were enemies, according to Romans five, while we were running headlong away from him, he pursued us. And not only did he pursue us, he died to re-engage relationship with us. This is the way of Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that is the invitation. That's the pathway towards what Jesus had in mind for his church. So 
we don't get the option of saying, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you, and you wanna follow his way, we don't get the option of saying self-sacrifice is something that like servant-hearted people do. No, self-sacrifice is the means by which we uh, grow in sincere love. So the, the other point, let's see if I can remember it off the top of my head since I'm preaching without notes. Um, so self-sacrifice is that next line. Can someone give it to me? No, self-sacrifice is the other uh, place into which we plant and grow sincere love. Self-sacrifice. If you can cultivate a habit of self-sacrifice, it will produce in you sincere love. Now let's, let's look back at where Paul's gone so far. So far, he said, we need to pursue sincere love. And ironically, the first step to pursue sincere love is to cultivate a personal character and vibrant relationship with God. That's our first category. And the second category is to cultivate a habit of self-sacrifice for those around us. And that is how we produce sincere love. Wow. So, uh, it's fine, it's fine guys, don't worry about it. <laughs> All right, so, I, I just think, I, I just think that I have this pastoral concern for this community this coming year. Because we're going into an election year. We're in a pretty sig significant theological conversation as a church family right now. And this stuff is not an option. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you call this your church family, this is the pursuit that Jesus invites us to. If you disagree with someone, you need to know their story first. If you disagree with someone and you're starting to struggle with animosity towards them, you need to go into the prayer closet and say, Jesus, this is not your heart for them, so work in me your heart for them. This is not an option for us. As we enter into election year and we have differences of opinion of how this country should be run and who should be running it and these conversations start to stir up, the pursuit that Jesus invites us to and that Paul invites this church to is to pursue sincere love, a love that's moving towards those who we disagree with. So in, in 1492, uh, in Ireland, two families were pitted against each other in a family feud. The Butler family and the Fitzgerald family, they were fighting over whose right it was to become Lord Deputy. This was a political battle. And it got so heated that it turned violent. And the Butler family saw that it was turning violent and there was bloodshed and so they fled and they they locked themselves in St. Patrick's Cathedral because they were afraid for their lives. And the Fitzgerald family pursued them and when they got there and they saw them locked inside this chapel, one of the leaders of the Fitzgerald family realized <laughs> it's gone too far. This has gone too far. And so he called out to them and he invited them, come out, let's talk, let's, let's, let's pursue peace. But the Butler family, they were terrified if they were to come outside this door, they were certain that they were gonna be massacred 
completely as a family. But this leader of the Fitzgerald family realized how do I communicate that I mean what I'm saying? So he ordered that there be a a hole cut in the door of this chapel. This is the door of the St. Patrick's Cathedral. And then he thrust his arm through the door. In a good faith gesture to communicate, I mean it. Let's pursue peace across these conflicts. The invitation that Jesus gives us is to risk our arm. This is a a phrase in in Ireland. It's called to chance the arm. It's a well-known phrase. It's to say, I'm going to take the first step. I will risk myself to pursue a sincere love, to pursue peace across party lines. I will risk. This is the invitation for us. In this election year and theological conversations we have as a community, we are called to chance the arm. This is what God has invited us to do as a community. And I'm gonna invite Hannah to come up and we're gonna process uh, this message um, uh, by singing another song. And we're also gonna have the prayer team uh, around, uh, dotted around the room for you to pray with. Now, I know that not every sermon is for you this week. Um, Maybe this is something that you're not necessarily struggling with and you, you have something else that you came into this room heavy hearted about. A family member that you just encountered at Thanksgiving dinner that you're struggling to feel this, you have this animosity towards. Uh, a financial situation, I don't know what it is but the prayer team's there to pray for you about any of these things. Um, so if you want to go up to them and, and receive prayer as we sing this closing song, I'd encourage you to do that. But our, my request for us as we sing this song, we're talking about God building in us this unity, God building in us his way and his heart, I would encourage you to ask him to cultivate sincere love in your soul for those who are difficult for you to love. Jesus, would you do that in us, we pray. Would you, would you make this church family a shocking, different kind of community this year? that we would be able to have difficult conversations across our differences and love each other with a sincere love. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.